action. Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now, we're talking business. Let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. He's a big movies think about big men in tights. You should have got us. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f are the Knutsons? We like movies. Hello, everybody. Welcome to We Like Movies, your favorite semi-monthly Pro movie, pop culture, just everything under the sun, cross-section of all things cinema. We go from historical deep dives to current events. Today is somewhere in between, but before we get to that, uh, I am your host, Oscar Dahl, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Seattle, Washington. I'm joined uh, over Zoom by my friend from Los Angeles, California, the one and only Matt Knutson. Matt, what's up, buddy? I gotta be honest, I'm melting a little bit down here in sweltering Southern California. We're having a uh, bit of a heat wave at the moment, but I'm also having this weird feeling like I've uh, kind of like washed up on the shore of my own subconscious, you know, <laughs> like a, a, a lot of days during quarantine, I've woken up feeling like, ah, here I am on the shores of my own subconscious. But the nice thing about today was I woke up, eyes opened, realized I wasn't dreaming anymore, thought to myself, oh, get to wax philosophical about Inception at some point today, and then thought maybe I am still dreaming, considering that that's pretty much one of my all-time favorite things to do. Yeah, I, I've been, uh, yeah, I've delayed this podcast once or twice just for random life stuff, and I, I just know in my heart that it's killing Matt. This is all he wants is to talk about Christopher Nolan, <laughs> and interestingly, my dreams have just been Ken Watanabe over and over again, just talking to me. Fair enough. Ken Watanabe has that incredible, just melodious delivery. He has a very, very thick accent, so oftentimes it's very difficult to discern what he's saying. But I don't. It doesn't really matter. Like I just love the sound of his voice, even when I can't understand him. Yeah. So I don't blame you for dreaming about that melodious voice. <laughs> I agree, agree with you on Ken. So where we left off was on our way into Inception, but in pure. Christopher Nolan style. We're not going to start chronologically. We're going to start backwards, which, you know, with Tenet coming out soon, uh, not available for us in either of our respective markets, but uh, we're going to go backwards in time and uh, start talking with uh, Dunkirk, then go to Interstellar, and then uh, wrap it up with Inception. Sounds great to me. Yeah, we, we delayed this because Tenet was getting delayed, we were originally going to talk about this back in July. We decided to push it when they pushed Tenet back again. We were originally going to coincide this conversation with the 10th anniversary of Inception, which would have been uh, July 2010. So yeah, so last month was the, was the 10-year anniversary. But it's it's kind of nice that we got to, we got to push it back. I, I sort of got to delay pleasure <laughs> of this of this podcast by a little bit more. And it's it's so interesting to be talking about three films that are so incredibly obsessed with the concept of time when we have a film coming out that obviously is clearly not only interested in time, but the fact that it's been 
pushed back, what, four times now, five times now, maybe kind of suggests that maybe the dilation of time, you know, maybe time is just a relative idea. Maybe it's all in your brain, man. Like maybe time isn't real. Maybe it's a construct. You know, I think that I think the Twitter, you know, film Twitter made the joke last month that Tenet has been delayed again and it will now be coming out in July of 2018. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's it's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, during quarantine, I think that's given a lot of us even more perspective on the idea of time and how it passes or how it doesn't pass. I interestingly just finished a book a couple of weeks ago called The Order of Time by an astrophysicist in Italy. That's sort of mind blowing. Um just kind of about how time doesn't exist, especially in the way we perceive it. And uh, even then, even to these guys, it's still kind of a fucking mystery. So Christopher Nolan likes to talk about uh, the things that interest him, and time is clearly the main thing that's interested him for, for at least a decade. And I think it nicely coincides with the point in his career where he could make pretty much anything he wanted for whatever, whatever budget he wanted. You know, when you get to that point in your career, you kind of understand like, oh, this is exactly the movie or the movies this guy wants to make. So, yeah, looking forward to this this discussion. And, uh, you know, should we, should we get started with a little Dunkirk action? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just, when I was uh, putting together the outline for this series, I always had slugged in the title for this episode being Fear of the Clock. Because I think these three movies are positioned in such a way that the only real antagonist, the the, the fundamental antagonist that they share is time. And uh, Interstellar gets so explicit about it that I think at one point Michael Caine even says, I'm an old man, I'm afraid of time. And Hans Zimmer even titles one of the tracks that coincides with the scene where he says that line as afraid of time. And then, of course... You know, maybe the most iconic track from the uh, soundtrack for Inception is called Time. That's the song that Hans Zimmer closes his Coachella <laughs> sets with, you know. <laughs> do, you th- do you think we've already said the word time more in the first five, ten minutes of this podcast than we've <laughs> said it in any other podcast to date? Probably. Probably. And it's it, and the, it won't be the last. During my time... <laughs> that yep. was unintentional. During my time at uh, Columbia University, I uh, I honed in on this idea and I basically made Christopher Nolan and Steven Soderbergh's uh, uh, you know interest in time the um, kind of central conceit of my thesis essay that I wrote while I was there. And I'm currently in the process of outlining a, a dissertation for a PhD program that will sort of continue my research into. Uh, narratology and particularly narrative interpretations of the subjectivity of time. And I've been working on these new concepts or new definitions, things like hypertemporality or the, you know, the post-temporal approach to filmmaking, because obviously we know that Christopher Nolan is a postmodernist. He likes to make movies that in their own way are about making movies, Inception being the most explicit version of that. And uh, in that regard, Dunkirk is not just a meditation about the war film. I think it's also kind of a meditation about the concept of a third act. This is not necessarily my concept, but it's been it's been written about a lot that Dunkirk really is just an hour and 45 minute long third act. Here's here's a filmmaker who has been working up to the, up to this point that he makes Dunkirk his films are getting longer and longer 
And he's always obsessed with this like con confluence or convergence zone where all of these sort of like disparate narrative elements finally come together in a really cathartic way. And he's constantly sort of being criticized for being the exposition guy and, you know, not caring about characters, just like leaning into exposition or over explaining. And so with Dunkirk, he kind of sets up this challenge for himself where it's like, what if I just made the entire film one big third act and it's not insignificant that it is his second shortest film it's it's second only to following which we've talked about barely a barely a feature <laughs> as it's you know an, an hour and change this movie is an hour and 45 minutes long i spent a lot of time when i was at columbia writing this essay just diagramming and breaking down films like memento inception and dunkirk and looking at my spreadsheet right here where i broke down every individual scene in the running time of dunkirk you have these these three temporalities right the mole the sea in the air. The mole timeline is 24 scenes uh, clocking in at 55 minutes and 22 seconds of on-screen time. The C timeline is 23 scenes, 28 minutes and 15 seconds of on-screen time. And the air timeline is 22 scenes, 18 minutes and 50 seconds of on-screen time. The mole is supposed to take place over a week. The C is supposed to take place over a day and the air is supposed to take place over an hour. First time you saw the film, did you know going in that it was going to have this kind of unique trifurcated structure? If I remember correctly, I knew that there was a, not saying this uh, pejoratively, but the, I knew there was going to be a time related gimmick going in, right? Gimmick. But I tried to avoid spoilers that went further than that. And what I was struck upon my first viewing especially was how quickly I sort of just understood the gimmick and understood what he was going with here and sort of solving the issue, having three different storylines all taking place in a, a different bottle of time, if you will, and how it all just really worked and made sense to do it sort of scientifically as opposed to like yeah, some sort of artistic way that some other movies might try to do it and it just it just worked it made it made a whole lot of sense to me by the end even though it is like quote unquote a, a gimmick i suppose i think it served the story incredibly well which is at the end of the day what what you want yeah it's it's my favorite thing about dunkirk i'm obsessed with with narrative structure and with formalism anyway so i'm obviously you know i'm obviously in the pocket for nolan because he's a formalist and because he fetishizes narrative structure quite possibly my favorite thing about him as an artist um because we share that that interest and that obsession uh, i did not know what the gimmick was going to be going in and it definitely took me a couple of, of viewings to kind of catch up with what he was going for and to sort of diagnose why he was going for it in that manner. I think this is the film that I've seen the most times in a theater. I think I saw this movie six times Ooh, wow. in theaters. I think is a personal best for me. <laughs> I mean, I certainly saw Interstellar and Inception at least five times a piece in theaters, but I think this is the only movie I've ever seen six times in the theater. And part of it was wanting to really, really drill down on what he was going for and why he was going for it that way. But the other part of it was that, you know, Nolan is also obsessed with and fetishizes uh, formats, right? So we know he's an analog guy. We know he shoots on film. We know he's particularly interested in IMAX. And so I wanted to make sure I saw the movie in true IMAX, fake IMAX, 70 millimeter, 35 millimeter. So I think I saw it twice on the real IMAX, one on the fake IMAX, once 35 millimeter, and once on like, you know, digital like laser projection or something. But it was at least a couple times before I really kind of honed in on like, all right, we've got these three discrete timelines but their relationship to one another is not necessarily defined by any sort of specific causality, right? If anything, I think it might be defined, and 
please forgive me for using this uh, extraordinarily pretentious term, but sort of retro causality. And the example that I'll use where I think it's where I think it's maybe most effective, we get to see the Killian Murphy character who's who's only credited in, in the credits as the shivering soldier. We get to see him all shell shocked and freaked out and shivering, very closed mouthed. And then we get to because of the nature of the film structure, we then flash back to before he was torpedoed where he was jovial and very casual and kind of laid back and seemed to be in in good humor. And then it's only once we flash from that back to the quote-unquote now and see him all shell-shocked that the sort of like retrocausal experiment really clicks into place. Does that make sense? Like it's so much more effective to see the after and then the before and then the after again in order to really drive home what this particular character's uh, combat experience has done to his personality. That makes sense. As opposed to if we saw it chronologically. I mean, that makes sense. Have you read any interviews or heard Nolan talk about sort of the genesis of why this story structure came to be? Because my read on it is this like, oh, he came up with this sort of clever idea and it really served the story because if he comes up with the idea to make a Dunkirk movie, okay, how can I make this interesting? And you're like, okay, I want to tell these three stories but the chronology doesn't really work out. It's not going to be satisfying narratively to have most of the action take place on land and then have little snippets as we get to the end and sort of speeds up and changes direction to these other stories. So I guess I'm wondering, was it just the easiest thing to do to tell the story he wanted? Or do you think the narrative idea was the idea as opposed to him just like wanting to tell a cool Dunkirk story? I think when it comes to Nolan, the subject matter, the conveyance of it, the form, I I just think that's the way his brain works. I just think you can't separate one from the other. Call it a gimmick, call it whatever you want, but I just think when he conceptualizes these things, he can't turn that part of his brain off. For, for a lot of people, it is annoying or distracting or unnecessary or extraneous. Uh, I, I find it to be maybe the most interesting thing about him. He's obviously British, or at least half British. And so the story of the Dunkirk evacuation is very ingrained in, in the historical knowledge of most Brits, I would presume, right? Like yeah. over here on, on this side of the pond, we don't really have that much of a context for the for the evacuation of Dunkirk because we weren't there. We weren't we weren't in the war yet. Unless you're a really hardcore student of World War II history, you probably don't know that much about this. But for a Brit like Nolan, this is a story that he's very, very familiar with. And so I think he was looking for a way to tell a relatively familiar story in an unconventional way. In order to tell the story, you're obviously going to need to deal with all the soldiers who are trying to get evacuated. You're going to have to deal with all these boats that came to pick them up. And then you're going to have to deal with the scant few planes that were trying to guard the evacuate. You know, they were yeah. doing whatever they could from the air to try to provide some support. So you, you automatically have these like three elemental levels, right? You have the ground, you have the sea, and you have the sky. And so just from an, from an elemental standpoint, it's like, all right, well, those are three sort of elemental locations that I'm going to need to deal with. You're just straightforward, chronologically minded filmmaker. will be like, all right, well, we're going to start from when our main character gets to the beach and we're going to end uh, when that main character gets back to the UK and, and his train comes to the stop. Because if you look at where the movie, like the earliest event chronologically is this character of Tommy getting ambushed in the village of Dunkirk. And then the last thing that happens chronologically 
is Tommy and Harry Styles' character, whose name escapes me, pulling in, pulling into the station and reading the newspaper with, I was going to say, Wilt Chamberlain. with um, Winston Churchill? Winston Churchill. <laughs> with Winston Similar Churchill's guys. speech. Yeah. Those are the extremes chronologically. And so the movie is bookended with that. The movie starts as er- with the earliest event and it ends with the last event. It would be really easy for a filmmaker to be like, oh, the most interesting or provocative image in this whole thing is the Spitfire airplane burning up. I think a less disciplined filmmaker would just end with that because it's such a searing, iconic image. But Nolan's so disciplined, he's like, no, we're going to have to end on the latest event. And that's why he cuts from the... A lot of people forget this. A lot of people, they remember the last shot of the movie being the Spitfire melting down on the beach. But it's actually this very quick little cut to Tommy looking up from the newspaper. And then he cuts to black because he has the discipline to be like, no, this is a structure that I've set for myself. And we got to end at the last event chronologically. You know, we're going to hop around over the course of this journey, but we're going to begin at the beginning and end at the end. Yeah. You can sort of reverse engineer his nonlinear construction based on where certain uh, events and information is going to land with the most dramatic potency. He has set it up so that when, when, when the three timelines actually do converge, it's the most dramatically and emotionally impactful because eventually these things will converge. As a matter of fact, they converge at uh, an hour, 13 minutes into the runtime. Convergence lasts for 14 minutes and 50 seconds, and then they go off in their own directions again. But I think the reason that he is he has set it up in that manner is he kind of wants to comment on narrative structure, and he kind of wants to comment on the way that narrative can manipulate the audience emotionally, because he's that kind of a postmodern, self-aware storyteller. The reason I think, and this is, you know, spoiler alert, this is my favorite of these three films that we're, we're going to talk about today. I think all this narrative stuff, all this structural stuff you're talking about, while it is extremely interesting and it's it's a very cool way to set up the narrative for a movie like this, it doesn't really matter if, it, if, it's, if it's ineffective or doesn't serve the story. I think there's a lot of cool things for people like you who are very into it and want to watch it and figure it out and solve it. There's a lot of meat. There's a lot of stuff to chew on here. But for your average Joe, go see this movie once. It's still super interesting. It still works emotionally, dramatically. Nolan able to combine his technical architectural side with dramatic storytelling chops and great action and beautifully filmed. Yeah, I wouldn't call it straightforward, but it just fuck. It works as a fucking war movie. Yeah, it works on on many different levels. It it definitely works for the narrative fetishists, mm-hmm. <laughs> sure, among us. But it also just yeah works for people. I mean, it's it's no surprise that this movie was an enormous hit and was nominated for best picture. Is maybe his beloved, his most universally beloved film. Dark Knight is obviously his most financially successful but the dark knight still divides people there's there's a lot of people who still take issue with the dark knight and something like inception is very divisive interstellar maybe his most divisive i feel like this is his least divisive film even yeah. people who are who, who find the setup who, even people who find the structure to be a little gimmicky usually concede that the movie's pretty effective as a war film yeah i just pulled up christopher nolan's uh, metacritic page he's got a 94 with dunkirk and the next next closest is uh, dark knight 84 and memento 80 so yeah not not only critically but i guess audience score it might be Dark Knight. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess my point is that I've, I've, I have talked to people who have issue with the Dark Knight, or who think it's imperfect, or who like take issue with the third act or whatever. Like there are those people out there who take issue with the Dark Knight, whereas I've literally never talked to anybody who doesn't like Dunkirk. In terms of this structural stuff, mathematical equations, and these like diagrams that Nolan uses to 
set these movies up to make it interesting for himself. I want to just briefly play you a couple little things because I think this feeds right into what we're talking about in terms of Nolan's obsession with uh, setting up a scaffolding, setting up an architecture that eventually pays off in an unexpected way. And and while much of the film's running time, it can feel gimmicky, there is a method behind the madness. Yeah, I'm just going to play you something really quick, quickly that was an inspiration for both Nolan and then by extension his buddy Hans Zimmer. familiar with that uh, the so-called shepherd tone uh no enlighten me please well i'll tell you what I, I could try but i'm not i'm not a musicologist so i'll let the very smart people over at vox enlighten both of us for about 90 seconds hans zimmer's score for dunkirk starts with the sound of ticking and that's a common theme in the legendary composer's work you can hear it in interstellar and in sherlock holmes But in Dunkirk, the ticking makes way for an overwhelming orchestra that seems like it's rising higher and higher, but never actually does. It's so tense, it makes you cling to your seat. That is because Zimmer is taking advantage of an auditory illusion caused by something called a shepherd tone. It consists of several tones separated by an octave layered on top of each other. As the tones move up the scale, the highest pitch tone gets quieter, the middle pitch remains loud, and the lowest bass pitch starts to become audible. Because you can always hear at least two tones rising in pitch at the same time, your brain is tricked into perceiving a constant ascending tone. Loop it all together, and it sounds like a piano scale going on for infinity. When the transition between tones is continuous, it's called a shepherd reset glissando, and it can sound really spooky. This can happen in the opposite direction too. You can hear it in the endless stairs in Super Mario 64, and in Pink Floyd. It's like a barber's pole of sound, constantly seeming to rise without actually going anywhere. Put that in a soundtrack? And it creates the sound of rising tension that carries the screenplay forward. Christopher Nolan loves this illusion. You can hear it in the Batpod sound effect in the last two Dark Knight films, and in the music of The Prestige, composed by David Julian. Nolan's films are often all about time, 
how it warps in space, in our dreams, and in our memories, and there's tension that comes with that. An illusion like this makes that tension palpable. All it takes is clever sound design. All right, so the shepherd tone. It's this crazy auditory anomaly. Um, I'll just go ahead and read the Wikipedia description. Uh, named after Roger Shepard, it's a sound consisting of a superimposition of sine waves separated by octaves. When played with the bass pitch of the tone moving upward or downward, it is referred to as the shepherd tone. This creates, I'm sorry, the shepherd scale. This creates the auditory illusion of a tone that continually ascends or descends in pitch, yet which ultimately seems to get no higher or lower. You can kind of think of it as the auditory equivalent of the MC Escher eternal stairs, right? Like they mentioned a barber pole there, which I think is a really good visual metaphor to use. Because theoretically, this tone should sound like it's constantly ascending, but it never actually gets there. It's just constantly repeating on itself, even though it's giving us, it's, it's creating the illusion of ascension in pitch. Now, if you listen to the score for Dunkirk, it's basically an hour and 45 minutes of that idea. I would argue that the structure of the narrative is also attempting to achieve the same effect quite successfully. And in that regard, Nolan and Hans Zimmer have basically kind of created this template with which they can try to explore different modes of ratcheting up tension over the course of an hour and 45 minutes. Like I said, an hour and 45 minute long third act, basically. I mean, the Hans Zimmer-Christopher Nolan partnership has been really interesting and seemingly allowed Hans Zimmer to almost be his true self or at least reach for higher heights by doing sort of off the wall almost like simpler shit than is expected of of composers he's a titan of form as opposed to sort of i don't know just sort of complexity or melody or whatever you want to call it but he takes simple ideas and the way he's able to create a soundscape in these movies that works just dramatically but also thematically is 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 really impressive and you know i'm, I'm always curious about how much those two work together i know we've talked about some previous podcasts but you know I, I think it has been maybe the most interesting modern cinematic you know director composer partnership out there Agreed. I, I think they really bring out the best in each other. I think uh, Zimmer really leveled up. I mean, I was always a fan, but I sort of understood why he kind of had a bit of a, I don't know, maybe checkered reputation or, you know, like he wasn't really taken as seriously pre-Nolan as he is. You know, he, he had Oscar nomination. He actually had won an Oscar for The Lion King. But um, I, I feel like people really respect him post-Nolan in a way that they didn't before. And now he obviously tours the world and performs this stuff live. <laughs> you, know? And, you know, when we talk about Inter Interstellar, we can talk about the unique approach they had to that soundtrack, to that score as well. But this one I find so interesting for a number of reasons. And, and I think that there is a level of discipline in terms of uh, Zimmer's approach to it that also echoes Nolan discipline I don't, I don't know how listenable like i, I don't know how <laughs> you know, much fun this soundtrack the, is the record player for a nice calm evening no got a pretty specific vibe to it matt so i want to go back to something you mentioned earlier about this being you know just an entire third act him maybe responding to some of criticisms of his work for maybe having weak third acts or, or not adhering to a traditional structure I mean, do you think that's what he's doing here? Do you think he was like, people don't think I can deliver a third act. Let me show them an entire movie of third acts. Like, do you think that was on his mind when concocting the the structure for this movie? You know, I've never read I've never read anything where he confirmed that. But this movie kind of does feel a little bit like a response to some of the criticisms, right? And in, and in some ways, it actually feels like him doubling down 
on things he's being criticized for, right? Like the, the struggles he's had with with writing for women, for example. It's almost like it's almost like he looked at people's criticism that his female characters were less interesting, or plot devices, or even just that there was so few female characters in his film, and he was kind of in a well, hold my beer. I'm gonna make a movie with literally no female characters besides uh, a couple of nurses on board some of these ships. Although it's obviously historically appropriate for that yeah. to be the case. Yeah, I, I don't know if it's necessarily so much it's him responding to critics as it is him just it's just the next step in in an evolution towards what he's most interested in whether you like his third acts or not to me this is a this is the natural next step in the move towards this like convergence idea in the case of inception bringing all these different dream levels together and then finding a place where they can all converge in a really interesting way interstellar does that as well he's like created a challenge for himself to be able to show us a new modality for the idea of a climax. I think it's it's unbelievably effective. But talking about it as a, an hour and 45 minute third act is interesting from an academic standpoint. I think the movie very clearly has three acts, and I think they're all perfectly effective. And I have re-edited the film to progress chronologically. I've done two things. I re-edited the movie chronologically, and I also uh, separated the three timelines into their own little short films. And they're all fine, but they're not nearly as effective as, as his method is, as his conveyance is. And I think that he's probably reverse engineering a lot of this stuff because he knows where he wants this stuff to land. And I mean that figuratively and literally, because the climax of this movie is Tom Hardy landing his Spitfire on the beach, right? Yeah. We've, sa- we've saved hundreds of thousands. We've loaded up all these boats. We've vanquished a couple of these Nazi Messerschmitts or whatever. And now the last thing to do is for Tom Hardy to just bring this thing in for a very metaphoric landing on this on the titular beach, mm-hmm. right? He's able to get that landing gear out just in time to save his life. Now he's captured. So is it, it's a won the battle, lost the war. The point is that uh, he's survived. He's managed to bring this in for a landing on the beach. And Nolan always talked about this as being more of a survival story than a combat story. Right? Yeah. These guys getting off the beach, making it back to the UK and character Farrier played by Tom Hardy surviving his his flight survival is the victory in this in this regard we certainly aren't going to beat the Nazis at this juncture of the war so being able to survive this situation is is the victory yeah I think every decision Noel makes in Dunkirk is great we, we bring up this straw man lesser filmmaker but let me do it again I, I think someone lesser would start this movie much before the invasion would try to characterize some of these people in you know less stressful times, uh, kids going to war, all, all this stuff. But to land right in the middle and start with the action there, I think makes a lot of sense. And, and he does it with some very simple title cards at the beginning, and we're off to the races. So I know you could talk about Dunkirk and the rest of these movies for probably three hours apiece, but I don't know if the listeners have that much time. So any final thoughts before we move to Interstellar? So uh, Nolan referred to this film as uh, a British film with an American budget. Um, he wanted the film to have a very British personality, but he also wanted he wanted uh, Warner Brothers to uh, back up the Brinks truck for him, which I think sort of speaks a little bit to the fact that he's a British-born filmmaker who identifies more with American filmmakers than he does with British filmmakers. Uh, like I said, the film is only 160, 106 minutes long. It had 100 $150 million budget returned $527 million worldwide. Allegedly, the script is only 76 pages long. Uh, he originally conceived of the film in the early 2000s. He wrote it in 2015 and then eventually made the film uh, in the late 2010s and it came out in 2017. It's the highest grossing World War II film of all time, unadjusted. Uh, it received eight Oscar nominations, which ties it with The Dark Knight and Inception, but it's significant that it was Nolan's first Best Director nomination. Uh, he, of course, lost to Guillermo del Toro for 
uh, The Shape of Water. Nolan claims to have never heard of Harry Styles before he auditioned him. <laughs> now, uh, yeah, Harry right. Style, now, Christopher Nolan is a British man with multiple British daughters. Take that for what it's worth. Uh, the main character, and I'd say that in air quotes, main character, his name is Tommy, but he's never actually referred to by his name. Uh, the, the word Tommy is slang for an ordinary British soldier. I think the decision to never show the faces of the quote-unquote enemy, the Nazis, is very significant and very effective and kind of speaks to how insular Nolan wanted to keep his story structure. You see out of focus Nazis at the very end coming to capture Farrier. But other than that, I mean, you certainly feel the Nazi bullets and you feel the Nazi bombs, but you never really see the face of, of any any members of the enemy. So in that regard, again, the, the antagonist here is, is time, the inevitable. It, it makes a ton of sense in the movie, and it's also pretty refreshing because putting ourselves in the perspective of, of these guys, it really is about survival. They're, they're not, there's no grandstanding about the cause of the Nazis or anything else. None of that matters to them at this point. They're just trying to get out alive. They don't even say the word Nazi in this movie. Do they? I don't think so. I think they just keep saying the enemy. The enemy is close. The enemy is close. The enemy is right over there. The enemy is closing in. Particularly effective in that opening scene when they get ambushed. It just, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, the, the the specter of it is always there, but I love the intentional choice not to actually not to actually show them. Cockpit scenes shot on uh, gimbal rigs that were built on the cliff on a cliff in Palos Verdes. Seventy five percent of the film was shot in true IMAX, which is the most of any Nolan film up to this point. Tenet may very well set a new record. Quentin Tarantino called it the second best film of the 2010s. I highly recommend anybody who's interested in this kind of stuff to listen to the episode of The Rewatchables that came out uh, back in December. Films that Nolan screened for his key crew members before going into production. All Quiet on the Western Front, The Wages of Fear, Alien, Speed, the aforementioned Unstoppable, Greed, Sunrise, Ryan's Daughter, The Battle of Algiers, Foreign Correspondent, and Chariots of Fire. And yeah, I just, I just have written down here, to me this feels phrase I keep coming back to when I think about this movie is the epic made intimate, mm -hmm. right? We have an epic story, but because of the way that he wants to tell it and because of how much time we spend, you know, in these cockpits or, um, you know, with these guys on the beach or this very small kind of drama happening on the um, pleasure craft, it somehow feels so intimate and so character centric, which is crazy considering that you're, you're looking at these sprawling images shot with IMAX cameras over the English channel from these, you know, from these Spitfire planes. And yet uh, to me, the movie always feels intimate. When we do our list of favorite Nolan movies, and we'll probably do that when Tenet comes out, this will be very, very near the top, if not the top one for me. And now we're going to go back in time before Dunkirk to a little, tiny, intimate film called Interstellar. If you've listened to this podcast comprehensively, which I'm sure you have, you will know that I consider Interstellar an overrated work, and I'm going to stick to my guns. But Matt, I want you to pitch me on why I'm wrong here. I don't think you're wrong. The difference is that I love this movie and you don't, but it doesn't mean you're wrong for thinking that it's overrated. This is really his most divisive film, maybe his messiest film. An argument could be made that it's his most ambitious film. I get why it's so messy and I get why it divides people and I get why it loses a lot of people. It's probably the film of his that most yada yadas <laughs> the important stuff, you know, like there's a lot of yada yada going on in Inception, but there's a distracting amount of yada yada going on in this movie. For some reason, it it doesn't lose me, but I'm very conscious of it while I'm watching it thinking like, mm, they're really glossing over that. Like he's clearly just trying to like, get on to what he's more interested in and he's kind of he's being a little bit lazy about and, and this is and this is a long film you know it's his longest film as a matter of fact so uh, there's a lot 
to chew on and there's a lot of material here and there's a lot of exposition and yet the film just glosses right over some very important things to the point of distraction my level of excitement for this movie as we approach release could not have been higher like i i love a good space epic this is all i wanted it seemed perfect to me it just you know most of the movie left me cold and i absolutely hate the ending there are definite definite highlights in this movie 100% and a lot of that stuff's in space a lot of that stuff involves Matt Damon pretty much all Christopher Nolan's movies have a have an energy to them they're invigorating even if you have little story issues here and there sort of the ends justify the means like you said this is definitely his messiest movie his most narratively flawed movie those are some things that I certainly couldn't get over and I know people who feel similarly and I know people who that you know it didn't matter to them this movie really really got them and they were emotionally affected in ways that that surprised me so I, I know you do love this movie D- do you feel like just like I said the ends justify the means the emotion got to you it just works for you dramatically and you can ignore the stuff or do you think the stuff people nitpick about is just sort of immaterial no certainly not immaterial it's a good question I I guess I'm an ends justify the means guy when it comes to this film I mean when I hear criticisms and a lot of them are are coming from the same place and a lot of them are focusing on the same details uh, I get it completely get it I don't dismiss it for some reason I guess I'm willing to concede or I'm willing to accept certain flaws because I do find this to be so ultimately emotionally satisfying. I think it's messy, but I think it's kind of like a beautiful mess. And it's so, it's his most like nakedly sentimental film, which is a weird mode for Nolan. This is, this is kind of a mode he hadn't really explored up to this point, you know, like he's so often thought of as being this cold, cerebral, heartless filmmaker. And this time he just completely like laid his heart bare. I mean, this is his, this is his like ode to fatherhood. He liked the experience so much that he put no females in his next movie and made it about war. So I know you're talking about it and it's, it's weird to be like, oh, thanks for opening yourself up to us, Christopher Nolan. I hated all those parts. <laughs> Don't do it again. <laughs> your biggest issues with this movie are the sentimental moment. Like your your issue is the sentimentality. I, I do think it's a little overly sentimental. I mean, within the within the story, it, it makes sense that it's that. Way. I mean, that's sort of the driving push. But that said, I, my biggest issues are are sort of story issues and narrative issues and like I said I, I hate the central conceits like the reveal at the end of what was going on I hate the bookshelf stuff I hate the dust I hate the black hole all that stuff just I was like oh fuck this is what this was about okay yeah I have written in my notes here that category of the yada yada stuff it's like gravity yada yada dust yada yada I will I will have solved you know Michael Caine and uh, Jessica Chastain keep talking about how they have, they have to solve gravity solve gravity but we never really get the specifics of that all, all the all the Morse code stuff um, um, I'm sure it makes sense to Nolan, and I'm sure he's probably justified it for himself. And maybe it's maybe there's more justification in earlier drafts of the screenplay. But there's a bit of Bill and Ted logic going on yeah. here, right? In terms of constantly kicking the can down the road, they just say, keep saying them, they, someone from the future, us or whatever, you know, aliens, you know, whatever it is, robots. Some some future form of of evolution has given way to uh, a, the ability to communicate with us this way and to show us this climactic tesseract scenario as a way 21st century brains can like understand the idea of five dimensions right yeah. 
that's fine, but it's a little bit like Bill and Ted saying, all right, we need to remember to take the time machine to go to the future to like give ourselves the car keys later on. There's just there's this kind of kicking the can down the road scenario. And I understand how that can be distracting to the point of being quite annoying. It's a sci-fi movie. And what I want from sci-fi is like, I'll believe any technology you have. I'll believe that you invented something. But like, I need the logic to work out, right? Like I need it all to make a semblance of sense in the end. And you know, you look at something like, you know, Arrival dealt with kind of similar ideas like fucking around with time and aliens coming to help you so they'll help themselves in the future but but that worked and it logically you know made sense in the end it's, it's just hard to have a satisfying movie when the ending the big reveal is something like oh fuck that doesn't make any sense come on what are we doing so it's hard for me to forgive that and enjoy the rest of the movie knowing that. I will say upon upon rewatch, I hadn't watched it in a long time. I did. I was able to sort of let myself go and enjoy sequences in the movie a lot more, knowing the disappointment that was coming. And it's you know it's it's handsomely shot. I love all good space shit, and Nolan proves his metal there. But yeah, I, I also think it's a little overly long. It takes a little while to get going. And so yeah, I mean it's just weird for such a a guy known for you know being an architect being a technician it seems like he almost he rushed the script somehow well let's set the table a little bit then the script is based on something that his brother jonathan was working on for steven spielberg it originally was a spielberg project spielberg was interested in interstellar travel and so he commissioned this i believe it was commissioned at Paramount, because I think DreamWorks was set up at Paramount at the time. Uh, Jonathan Nolan works on it for years. Eventually, he gets his brother involved. Chris decides he wants this to be his follow-up to uh, The Dark Knight Rises, so he goes to work kind of like rewriting or at least embellishing upon Jonah's structure. And apparently the only real stuff that survived from the original Jonathan Nolan version is the uh, first third, the Earth stuff, the Dust Bowl stuff, if you will. And from there, Nolan gets to play with what he was really interested in, which is relativity. And then eventually gets into all the stuff in terms of using quantum physics as a way to quantify by an abstract concept like love, right? And it makes sense. So you got Nolan at this point where he's he's a father. He, I think he has three children. They're getting into their teenage years by this point. He's wanting to try to use his own life experience. He's wanting to try to make films that are more personal, more autobiographical, try and bring some of this intangible emotional stuff that he's feeling as a father to the screen. But he's so cerebral and he's so process oriented and he's so mathematical that he's he's attempting to make a film that tries to reconcile the idea of love as a scientific concept, as a mathematical concept even, right? So on its face, he's already setting himself up for failure in a lot of ways, right? But his his ambition and, and his desire to to approach an abstract concept like that with his very Nolan-ness, I find it fascinating. Like, I think this is just, it's one of the weirdest films he's ever made. And is it one of his least successful films? Maybe, but I, I'm just so impressed by the ambition of it. And I'm impressed by kind of like the audacity of it. And at this point, he's coming off the Batman movies. He has, he can marshal all of Warner Brothers' resources, $165 million. Ends up being a surprisingly huge hit considering how mixed the reaction was to it. Six, 676. It's it's more than that now because they re-released it in China about a month <laughs> ago. And I think it just passed like 800 Jesus. million. So it's, 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 it's creeping up. Like it's knocking on Inception's door. And huge hit considering that a lot of people were quite perplexed by it and a lot of critics were left scratching their heads. It's definitely his lowest rated on Rotten. Tomatoes at 72%. All right, so let's tee this up a little bit in terms of where this sits in the reconnaissance because you know how much I love invoking that whenever I can. So I feel 
that the time that the year following the release of Dallas Buyers Club represents the apex slash end of the reconnaissance. Dallas Buyers Club comes out on uh, November twenty second, twenty thirteen. True Detective premieres January uh, of twenty fourteen. McConaughey wins the Oscar for Dallas Buyers Club in March of 2014, and Interstellar premieres in November of 2014, almost exactly a year after the after the release of Dallas Buyers Club. Interstellar is the end of the reconnaissance, and I think it's also Matthew McConaughey's best performance. This is really his year, and this is like when he is at the height of his powers. And I think it's so interesting that Nolan handpicked McConaughey before we even knew what a reconnaissance was. He, he basically cast him off the strength of mud, which I think chronologically is what, maybe the third film in the reconnaissance? <laughs> <laughs> he was way ahead of the reconnaissance what, curve. What's the first movie, the reconnaissance? It's the Lincoln Lawyer, Bernie, then Killer Joe, uh, then the Paperboy, then Mud, uh, Magic Mike, Dallas Buyers Club, The Wolf of Wall Street, Interstellar, and then you can also add True Detective in there between The Wolf of Wall Street and Interstellar. You can always remember it because it's nine movies in one show. You, you don't think the second reconnaissance was 2019 with Serenity, Beach Bum, and The Gentleman? Uh, someday we should we should devote a podcast to the reconnaissance and then the reconnaissance or whatever you want. <laughs> the second the second reconnaissance. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, my point is that I think Nolan is underrated in terms of his casting savvy on its face like the idea of McConaughey being involved in a Christopher Nolan movie doesn't make a whole lot of sense until you watch this film and realize what he's going for and I really think that this is this is the best McConaughey performance and whether you like the film or not he's really going for it right like he's really dialed into the you know the personality of this movie yes he is I mean there are there are multiple memes of go around of McConaughey in this movie because he is just showing that much emotion no I I mean I love McConaughey I I do think he's great I think with a lesser actor this movie could have been even uh, even more disappointing than it ended up being i think jessica chastain is is fine too i think michael kane is fine Anne hathaway also fine but it doesn't do enough for me and while he can carry the movie and it's really fun having the matt damon part of it too i i just don't care about these characters enough to get on the emotional journey and i and i don't know if that's a fault of the narrative sort of plopping in the end or it's just nolan's screenwriting throughout like like i said this movie just leaves me weirdly cold i don't know where that gets me and i don't i don't know what the legacy of this movie is going to be 10 20 years from now i i do think people are going to look back and sort of lower the esteem of this movie especially in relation to whatever Christopher Nolan's oeuvre looks like then. But I, I don't think we're there yet. I don't think this is considered like a flop or like the the outlier yet. But, but I, I, I foresee a time where that will be the case. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually kind of feel that the this movie's reputation has actually improved in the last uh, six years. Uh, I, I remember when it came out, it was really divisive. A lot of people were quite negative. I was pretty confused the first time, honestly. I had to go, I had to see it multiple times in the theater before I finally came around and, and kind of locked into it. You know, you're, you're mentioning how, like how, how you're not necessarily uh, moved on an emotional level. I think the moment when the movie really explained itself to me and when I sort of locked into what he was going for is when, boy, right around the halfway point of the movie when they finally come back from the wave planet and he watches the videos of his children, uh, which is the scene that gave birth to the McConaughey memes that you're talking about. And I really think that's kind of the, the, the you're either with us or you're against it moment. I feel like if you're not 
moved by that moment and if you're not wrapped up in the emotion of that moment in terms of him seeing that his daughter is now the same age as he was when he left then yeah i don't think you're going to come around to the movie later i don't i don't think the the film's climax is going to move you comes back from the planet he goes and sits down to watch these videos it's been 22 and a half years it's been like 23 years or something now thanks to this dilation of time which is clearly what no one's really interested in right (laughs) like he's 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 most interested in that he's reverse engineering the narrative backwards and forwards to accommodate his fetishizing of time dilation which is cool i'm into it i'm into it as well he hits us with this incredible emotional atom bomb where you see you know you see his son timothy chalamet grow into casey affleck and then casey affleck says sorry murphy doesn't want to talk to you the screen goes black and then right about the point where mcconaughey is about to stand up or turn the screen off you see this fuzzy image of jessica chastain come into focus and he figures you know you figure it out exactly the same moment as he does he we, we know exactly who this is before she says a word and when she says you know hi dad you son of a bitch you told me that by the time you came back we might be the same age well today's my birthday and it might be a really good time for you to come back right around i mean even just talking about it gives me (laughs) gives me the vapors i think it's extraordinarily effective and it lays the track for what i consider to be the emotional climax of the film is when he sees his daughter who's grown into ellen burston and he holds her hand later in the movie and you know she says that i knew my dad would come back because he promised me so or whatever like that's just an incredibly moving moment to see that this person is now older than her father. But there's an emotional journey none of us will ever experience to sort of dramatize this incredibly provocative use of complex quantum physics and relativity. Um, I just, just I just think is a unique narrative conveyance, the uh, relationship between the parent and the child being inverted. I think you're exactly right about the time dilation being what Christopher Nolan's truly interested in, and that's where he wanted to get as soon as possible. And I, I do, I mean, it is a really cool concept, fun idea, and the ticking clock while they're on the planet's really cool. But again, you know, there are times with Nolan movies that you can kind of, you can kind of see the blueprint, right? Where you say like, okay, this is what he wanted to get to like you said reverse engineered everything to get to this part which kind of drops the facade a little bit and maybe would take one out of the movie yeah like i said he has a bit of a bad tendency to yada yada some stuff because he wants to get on to what he's principally interested in that's a bit of a lazy impulse i concede but when he is dialed into what he's truly interested in the movie just flies and he's showing you things that we've never seen before i mean yeah i mean there's just there's just images from the film that are seared in my brain and there's there's sequences like the aforementioned see where McConaughey's watching the videos and then particularly so-called no time for caution scene the space docking sequence that's just a top five Nolan action scene everything is clicking literally and figuratively it's one of the greatest pieces of music Hans Zimmer ever wrote in in the category of the thing we always talk about in terms of like geography in an action sequence it's just a fucking master class Endurance rotation is 67, 68 RPM. Okay, get ready to match our spin with the retro thrusters. It's not possible. No, it's necessary. Endurance is hitting stratosphere. She's got no heat shield. Ace, you ready? Ready. Cooper, this is no time for caution. Ace, if I black out, you take a stick. Stars, you're ready to engage the docking mechanism.
endurance is starting to heat. 20 feet out. I need three degrees starboard, Cooper. 10 feet out. Cooper, we are lined up. Initiating spin. It's an all-time great scene, and this is my favorite Hans Zimmer score for Christopher Nolan uh, with a bullet. I mean, that's why I remembered seeing that in the in the IMAX theater for the first time was, God damn it, this is this music is absolutely incredible, and it it, yeah, it, it buoys the movie. And I who knows what I'd feel like if it, if it wasn't this Hans Zimmer score. I think the score is maybe too good for the movie, to be perfectly honest. Uh, as much as I'm a defender of the film, I think this is not only Nolan. This is not only Zimmer's best Nolan score. I think it might be Zimmer's best score which means i would probably place it as maybe one of the greatest scores of all time if it's one of the if it's the best score from one of my favorite composers i mean i don't think that's a crazy thing to say i mean it is it, it is that good I and mean, it is that striking especially during sequences like the docking scenes it shares a lot of dna with philip glass's score for koniskatsi i think which is a favorite of both of us it's, it's one of our you know mutual favorite films and also one of nolan's favorite films zimmer and nolan visited uh, london's temple church to record the 1926 four manual harrison and harrison organ played by the church his musical director Roger Sayer and this movie features a friggin like pipe organ at yeah. the center of it um, I'm just going to read this off of Wikipedia the choral elements were experimental Zimmer used the choir in traditionally unusual ways for example to hear the exaltation of 60 people as if the wind flows through the dunes in the Sahara he made the choir face away from the microphones using them as reverb for the pianos Zimmer explained the further we get away from earth in the movie the more the sound is generated by humans but an alienation of human sounds like the video messages in the movie they're a little more corroded a little more 
more abstract. It's so funny that every technical thing that Christopher Nolan does has to have some sort of crazy thematic element that ties in, even if it's only noticed by 0.001% of the... You know, it's like he's making movies for film PhD students like you, Matt. (laughs) I know. Sometimes I get disappointed when I start Googling around and I realize how many PhD dissertations have been written about his movies. I'm like, God damn it, I'm such a cliche. Just to close out the Zimmer thing. So Zimmer was on campus at Loyola Marymount University when he received a note from Christopher Nolan, according to legend. I I don't know what this means. Did did, did, did a (laughs) A a courier courier literally go? A courier get dispatched to LMU and literally hand (laughs) telegram from Mr. Zimmer. He apparently was on campus at our alma mater, Loyola Marymount University in in Los Angeles, introducing something. I don't know. He was doing some Q&A with students and he received a note from Nolan. Uh, It was not a script. It was just an outline for the film. Apparently, all it really said was this is a movie about a father leaving his children for work. And he basically asked Zimmer to come up with something. He just said, here's an outline of the film. Here's the main themes. Here's what we're going for. He didn't tell him anything about the plot besides the fact that it was a science fiction film about a father leaving his children for work. And he had Zimmer just compose a couple little things and then they embellished from there. So yeah, I I think it's the best thing about the film. Distinct from Dunkirk, I think it is very re-listen-to-able. There's just incredible moments in the film that I can't can't separate the image from the sound. Um, As I mentioned, this was kind of a breakout for Timothy Chalamet. Although I will say, I feel like that character and Casey Affleck in particular... Very underserved, yeah. Kind of acts like an asshole at one point and the movie basically turns its back on him and you never really hear from him again. It's crazy how how much more it is interested in in the Murph character than it is in the Tom character. Does Nolan have a son and a daughter? I think he has two daughters and a son. So he hates his son. Kind of feel bad for Casey Affleck. I think he's doing his best. I don't think it's a bad performance. I just think the movie's not interested in him. And one of the weakest sequences in the movie is when Jessica Chastain goes out to burn the fields and they're like they're worried that that Casey Affleck's going to come home. It's just it's it's real clunky. It's also juxtaposed with the truly heart pounding stuff that's going on on the other side of the galaxy. You know, it's Nolan attempting to try to intercut between Earth and this other planet and to try to conflate dramas going on 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 either sides of the galaxy. And it doesn't really work. The stuff going on with McConaughey and Anne Hathaway, the aforementioned Matt Damon, is, is much more interesting. Did you know about the Matt Damon reveal going in? Yes, I did. Unfortunately, that was not spoiled for me. It was legitimately shocking oh, nice. when I saw it the first time. I'm jealous. I knew it was going to be somebody big. Okay, this is going to be somebody big. This is going to be a movie star. But I did not know it was going to be Damon. Of course, his next film is The Martian, which is kind of funny, with Jessica Chastain. This is Nolan's third film to be uh, a one-word title that starts with an I. Kind of weird, right? Insomnia, Inception, and Inter- Interstellar. He loves those one-word titles. It's just strange that three of them have been uh, have started with an I. This is his first collaboration with Hoyt Van Hoytema, who has become his cinematographer following uh, Wally Pfister's move into directing. All of the uh, first-person interviews, with the exception of Ellen Burstyn, are pulled from Ken Burns' The Dust Bowl documentary. So Ellen Burstyn's the only one who's obviously not from that documentary. It's significant that she's the first voice you hear in the film and she's the last voice you hear in the film, right? So I would argue that even though McConaughey's character Coop is the protagonist of the film. Can argue it could be made that Murphy Cooper might actually be the main character of the film, or maybe or even the film's hero. There's the two plans that NASA has put together, Plan A and Plan B, and I find it kind of funny that plan that involves uh, taking embryos to another planet shares its name with emergency <laughs> contraception. Uh, I'm hot and cold on a lot of Christopher Nolan trailers, but I got to be honest, the first teaser for Interstellar that had that incredible track from V for Vendetta. Oh man, that was a religious experience the first time I saw it in the theater. Oh, 
got me going. Couldn't wait. Going to read Richard Roper's uh, four-star review for the film. This is one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen in terms of its visuals and its overriding message about the powerful forces of the one thing we all know but can't measure in scientific terms, love. Recently, Roger Deakins also had Hoyt Van Hoytema on his podcast, and uh, they talked about the film, and, and Deakins referred to the opening uh, cornfield chase as one of the most beautiful sequences in recent film history. Describing Nolan as a merchant of awe, Tim Robbie of The Telegraph thought that Interstellar was agonizingly close to a masterpiece. Todd McCarthy of The Hollywood Reporter wrote, this grandly conceived and executed epic tries to give equal weight to intimate human emotions and speculation about the cosmos with mixed results, but it is never less than engrossing and sometimes more than that. George R.R. R. Martin called Interstellar the most ambitious and challenging science fiction film since Kubrick's 2001, which of course was a big reference point for Nolan. A very flawed film, but a film that I, I, I love quite deeply. And I certainly never begrudge anybody who is turned off by it because this movie has a lot of flaws. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm turned off by it, but I respect Nolan for, for going for it, right? Like, I, I'm not going to be mad at Nolan for this movie. It doesn't sour my taste in him at all. Yeah, I just think it's going to go down as one of his uh, one of his lesser work. This guy goes for big, bold shit. Sometimes you're not going to hit all the right notes. On the morning of July 16th, 2010, went to a movie theater in Los Angeles with our mutual friend and friend of the podcast, Ryan Julio, and I had one of the absolute giddiest film experiences <laughs> in theater experiences of my entire life. You have those experiences a few times. Fight Club was was one of them. Weirdly enough, the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie was one of them. There's just those times where just the time of day, the theater, the subject matter, when just everything kind of comes together to make for a film experience that you're just going to carry with you for the rest of your life and you're never going to forget where you were and how you felt in that moment. And that's the way that I felt the first time that I saw Inception. And honestly, I was a little mixed on Nolan going into Inception. I was not sold yet. And I was not even all that sold by the marketing campaign for the film. I was intrigued by the subject matter and I was I was respectful enough of Nolan to give him the benefit of the doubt. Knowing how good Leonardo DiCaprio's taste is, his involvement was enough reason to give me um, some confidence. But up to this point, coming off of The Dark Knight and as much respect as I had for The Dark Knight, I wasn't obsessed with The Dark Knight the way a lot of people are. And it really was Inception that finally taught me Nolan. And I've been obsessed ever since. You say it taught you Nolan, but isn't this sort of the first quote-unquote Christopher Nolan movie in a way, right? Like, it's his true self emerging from the womb. Like, given his druthers, given unlimited budget, not tied to a franchise, you can group Inception, Interstellar, Dunkirk, and Tenet into this box of, okay, this guy has all the resources in the world. Guy does not want to do any franchise. He doesn't want to do anything that's not an original work. And so here he is. This is what Christopher Nolan is. I, I think it's pretty easy to group post-Inception and pre-Inception. I know Dark Knight Rises comes after that. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, in terms of box office, this is where Christopher Nolan really became a force unto himself. Like I said, untied from, from the Batman franchise. You can, you can tie a lot of the $1 billion revenue of The Dark Knight to Batman. At, at the risk of not giving Nolan enough credit, what you're saying is that most of the reason that The Dark Knight made a billion dollars was because we were just all so excited about Batman, as opposed to Inception, which is all Nolan. To, to get to that point where you're selling an original movie and making a billion dollars, you have to have something that comes before it that got you there. For Christopher Nolan, it was it was Batman that sort of got his name out there. And I feel like Christopher Nolan and like James Cameron have a lot of similarities in that they have this sort of, you know, ethereal, or just, just sort of, you can't explain what they have. They have this formula. They have something about the movies they make that they're just going to make a fuck ton of money no matter what. And part of that's their name. Part of that's the way they make movies. Part of it is something about their films really inspires people to get to the theater and see it multiple times. It's an impressive, bold, 
bold move for this to be your like big shot. Like a lot of guys would have done something a little safer. A lot of guys would have done something different with, with all this money, but Inception's a fucking huge home run swing. Sort of set him up for the rest of his career. Yeah, I think the one-two punch of the Dark Knight and Inception gonna give him carte blanche for as long as he wants to make movies. And I think it's his best movie, and I think it is, you know, I've referred to it as kind of the Rosetta Stone into his his filmmaking. And to me, everything branches off from here. It's his seventh film, but I analyze everything he's made before and after this in the in the context of not necessarily comparing it to Inception, but just using it as the Rosetta Stone to understand his interests. I'm not the first person to um, suggest this idea, but I, I think it's one of the greatest films ever made about filmmaking. And in that regard, it is one of the ultimate postmodern texts. My favorite film of all time is probably Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half, which is what I consider to be the best film ever made about filmmaking, but pretty close second in the category of movies about movies, I think would be Inception, because it is the film that takes this concept. It's it's called uh, it's called the Oneiric film theory, O-N-E-I-R-I-C, which is this film theory that refers to the depiction of dreamlike states, or to use the use of the metaphor of a dream or the dream state in the analysis of films. Now, Nolan's not the first person to do this, and he's also not the first person to make movies about people infiltrating each other's brains or each other's dreams. But he's kind of taking all of this stuff that has come before, whether it's the cell or dreamscape or the matrix for that matter, or even, you know, lesser known kind of more flawed stuff like the, you know, the 13th floor. Much has been made and written about uh, how similar the film is to that Donald Duck cartoon that is all about the Beagle Boys infiltrating Scrooge McDuck's brain in order to get the combination to his vault, which Nolan has never confirmed whether he actually (laughs) ever read that cartoon or not. But that that comic did come around in the early 2000s when Nolan was starting to have children. So it also shares a lot of similarities with a uh, Japanese film and anime film called Paprika, which is also about uh, dream infiltration, you know, dream espionage, as it were. So it's hardly a wholly original concept. I think Nolan just perfects it. And he crafts this incredibly beautiful and sophisticated, very postmodern, very self-aware and very, I think, autobiographical kind of meditation. And it's not insignificant that DiCaprio's character happens to dress like Christopher Nolan, happens to have very similar hair, <laughs> hairstyle, very similar facial hair. I think it's a meditation on the conflicted or the tortured artist and an artist who's trying to reconcile how good he is at his job and how activated he is by the um, by the potential for creativity inherent in his job and also struggling with the fact that he is a father who wants to get home to his children. And then this bleeds over into Interstellar, which is also a movie about a father struggling with dividing his time between what he's really good at and how much he loves his children and trying to reconcile that. So in this regard, you got the character of Cobb played by Leonardo DiCaprio, who is the genius filmmaker, right? The genius creative. He is the extractor. You look at his whole team and you're like, okay, there's the forger, there's the architect, there's the point man, here's the tourist, the the, the financier, whatever. You got all these people who are very well defined. And then you're like, okay, well then what's this guy doing? What's what's DiCaprio doing? What's so important about him? And then you step back and realize, oh, he's, of course, he's the director. Obviously, like he's the one who's going to make it all happen. He's the one who's making these creative decisions throughout this yeah. process. Because oftentimes, if, if you've ever been on a film set, you kind of look around and you see these people are painting a set and these people are messing with props and these people are helping somebody to get in a costume and this guy's messing with his microphone. And then you look over and there's this one guy who's just kind of sitting there and you're like, well, what's that guy <laughs> do? Like, what, what's so fucking important about that guy? You're like, oh, that's that's the director. Yeah. His his job responsibilities are almost the hardest to define. Yeah, right? which, which makes sense. And that's Cobb. It's about filmmaking in that way, but it's also about filmmaking just in sort of the way the narrative is structured, right? A lot has been said about how the first almost hour of this movie is about explaining the rules. Yep. Explain yep. the rules of the world. And then after that, you can do whatever you want within those rules. And 
will make sense to the audience. So that's sort of what big budget filmmaking is, right? Like story-wise, you have to set the rules first. You have to you have to create the sandbox, and then you can play in that sand. I, also, I feel like the way we're talking about this, if no one has seen the movie, you'd be like, oh, this sounds pretentious. But this is also a fun as hell action movie. It's not not pretentious. Let's keep that in mind. <laughs> sure. Okay. And the, right. the pretension is actually one of the things I, I maybe like most about the film. But I'm also coming from a place where I, I fetishize the screenwriting process. I fetishize the filmmaking process. I get super geeky about all this stuff. But yes, it is also incredibly fun. It's a visionary work and it and it connected with people immediately. Like it's one of his most devices films, but it's also one of his most popular films. You know, it's one of his biggest hits, certainly the, his biggest hits of his original films. But it connected with people almost immediately and it got people talking and it got people scratch and it got people arguing immediately, mm-hmm. which I think is, is an enormous compliment to the film that it just became an instant phenomenon. It's different from Interstellar, like I said, because the rules are very well defined and he plays within those rules rules and the logic of it really does make sense in the end you know w- once you think about it once you deconstruct it none of this would matter if it didn't work sort of in an entertainment fashion entertainment function and it absolutely does even the exposition is a lot of fun because it's about creation architecture and and the visuals are, are fantastic and he's got this you know all-star cast i don't really need to read it as a treatise on filmmaking right i i don't, I don't need to have that to enjoy it uh as much as you know seemingly everyone where everyone across the world has enjoyed it. But again, it just goes to show Nolan's sort of <laughs> deep level thinking about everything. Because, you know, even you bring up Eight and a Half, like that movie to me is very clearly about filmmaking. And even that, if you go into it not really knowing that, I, I think it does lessen the experience where I'm not sure that's the case here. In other words, if you're not interested in filmmakers or what's going on inside a filmmaker's head, it's pretty hard to get involved with Eight and a Half. Yeah. Whereas Inception can be can be enjoyed on many different levels. Yeah, there you go. Much has been written about the first hour of the film and how exposition heavy it is. But Nolan has always made the kinds of films where he needs to teach you how to read them. He makes the kinds of films that require a little bit of an instruction manual. And he's very, very good at being able to weave those instructions into the fabric of the narrative. And in this regard, he creates the Ariadne character, the architect, the screenwriter, if you will. And she becomes our surrogate. And as a result, the rules and the parameters of the world are laid out and he lays them out in all sorts of interesting and dynamic ways. Like he's able to get into the dream, walk through dream Paris, watch it fold on itself, watch Ariadne create these um, these infinite mirror scenarios, which are strong and visual and dynamic and, and teaching you how to read the film and giving you the kind of information that needs to become so ingrained in the viewer that by the second half of the movie, by the time we get on the plane and we enter Fisher's head and we begin the titular inception, that we can just like hit the ground running, be off to the races and stop explaining. This movie I love upon release. It's not a movie I go back to as much as certainly you do. God damn it, every time I watch it, so it's such a fucking rollicking good time. It's extremely visually inventive. It might be my favorite visual movie of Nolan's, despite me being a space guy. I don't know if it is his absolute masterpiece, like, like it seems like you think it is, and I might even like something like The Prestige better, because I'm a huge Prestige guy. But I will say this movie completely holds up, and talk about using visual practice effects like this movie 
will continue to hold up. There's nothing clanky or, 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 or shitty about the way this movie looks, and it, it will endure for, for decades to come because of that. Yeah, when I try to put my finger on why this stuff works for me, why, why I find this stuff to be so effective, why I'm so obsessed with these films, particularly these, these late period Nolan films, and why I feel so compelled to analyze them and write about them ac- academically, analytically, I think it kind of comes down to like the three C's, like convergence, confluence, and, and correspondence. And what I mean by that is I'm interested in these embedded layers that he creates within his narrative and the ways the ways in which those layers correspond with one another. In the case of Dunkirk, you've got these three temporalities, for lack of a better word. The film is a triptych. The metaphor I came up with when I wrote about the film recently, uh, I, I thought of it as like three different vinyls, three different records, and they were different diameters based on uh, their duration, right? They're obviously wider depending on the duration. And then Nolan has these three discs kind of spinning simultaneously, but then he's also like sliding these vinyls on top of each other, right? So they're different durations and they're moving at different at different speeds relative to one another. And he's basically like pressing down on, if you want to take this metaphor to its logical conclusion, if these are all playing on the same turntable, he's like pressing the needle down so hard that it's actually puncturing through the three individual temporalities, the three individual timelines. And so you can puncture through the one hour into the one day, into the one week, and you can catch those at different parts of their duration. Now he's choosing intentionally to mash down on that needle when he knows the correspondence between those three temporalities is going to be the most dramatically potent. Dramatic potency, dramatic efficacy. My favorite parts of Inception are when the different dream levels are corresponding with each other. Probably the most iconic and famous sequence in the movie for a reason. That when Arthur's hotel hallway starts to spin, it's because the van on the upper level has tumbled, and so gravity is being sort of reconceptualized in real time, right? That's what I'm most interested in. When these different dream levels are talking to one another, when they're like yelling back and forth across the temporal chasm, that's when I think the movie really transcends and becomes something special and becomes something wholly Nolan, like wholly different from anything else in the science fiction realm. I mean, he's pulling from a lot of different places. He's pulling from The Cell. He's pulling from Minority Report. He's pulling from Blade Runner. He's pulling from The Matrix, whatever. All of his references are clear. They're all things we can relate to. They're all things we respect, but he's truly making it his own. And I think the thing that's so unique about him and the thing that's so special about him is this obsession with slash anxiety about temporality. The dilation of time between the different levels is is really a stroke of genius in here because you know he's making this this whole thing up. There's no it's not like Interstellar where he's dealing with hard science or trying to deal with hard science in places like this is a right. this is a, a a narrative story thing that makes everything work that much better. It's not science, but it is set up to be mathematical. Like when Ariadne starts breaking down, the first level is a week, the second level is a year, the third level is ten years or whatever, right? And you really start to become anxious as she's saying that and you know and then by the time you get down to limbo it's infinite or whatever right mm-hmm. and the anxiety of that she somebody i think she even asks at one point like who would want to be stuck in a dream for 10 years and he says depends on the dream and it just and it just it just makes sense to people you know to human beings who have dreams where it's like the the most vivid dreams seem to be the ones that that take the longest right so like we we understand that like oh you're in and out of the top level you're maybe a little longer for something you kind of remember but if it's something you do remember you feel like you were there for 10 years i was so surprised when this movie came out how many critics were were critical of Nolan's interpretation of the dream world. You remember reading all those articles? People yeah. were just like, it's it, you know, it's not trippy enough, or that's not what dreams look like, or this is too logical, this is too cerebral, like dreams are just weird and they're trippy and there's floating and you can fly and stuff. That's not how Nolan's brain works. Like these probably this is probably what Nolan's dreams look like. They're probably very architectural. People are probably very manicured. They're in really nice suits. P.S. These people are at work in the dreams, right? Like these people are on the clock. Yeah. This is their workspace. This this is their soundstage, right? Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. So it makes sense that there would be a logic to it. For Nolan, where everything is so regimented, so process-based, so logical, so mathematical, so architectural, of course this is what his dreams would look like. And that's why his, his personality just pervades this thing. And I never doubted it for a second. I was just like, yeah, that's that makes sense, not only in, in this sort of heist context, but also this is probably exactly what Nolan sees in his head when he dreams. Something that I thought was so so smart and so effective was the way in which they the dreams start and the dreams end. And at one point, DiCaprio even says to Ellen Page, you never really remember how a dream started, right? Which I think is exactly right, because there are times in my life when I have realized I'm in a dream and I've been able to like experience the lucid dream mm -hmm. scenario, which is which is an incredible mind altering thing. But I, I've never been able to pinpoint during a dream exactly where it started or where it ended for that matter. The confidence with which he's able to go kind of like small or minimalist with the trippiness of it all, I think is such a smart and disciplined move on his part. I love it. The entrances to the dream levels aren't like trippy stargates because that's not what falling asleep looks like. You're awake, then you're asleep and you're dreaming and you don't remember how any of that started. I think all that stuff is, is extraordinarily effective and it, and it also plays into Nolan's obsession with subjectivity, right? Mm -hmm. He wants his films to be a subjective representation of the subject matter. If the prestige is about magicians, then he's going to make a feature length magic trick. Exactly. Matt, does the spinning top fall? <laughs> See, I... You don't think it matters. I don't think it matters and neither does he and, and I'm not trying to conflate my opinion with, with Mr. Nolan's opinion about it. I just happen to agree with him. It doesn't matter and if you're focused on whether it does or not, I think you've kind of missed the point well, of the end of the movie. That's why I wanted to bring this up, Matt, because do you think Nolan regrets that ending now? Because I sort of has taken the lead and of when people talk about Inception. I definitely have read our, I've read interviews with him where he appears to be ever so slightly annoyed at how often he gets asked that question because he feels like people miss the point of his film by getting hung up on that. I think Nolan believes that we create the context for our own reality and nobody knows what anyone else's reality looks like and nobody can truly understand what anyone else's subjective experience looks or feels like. And so he's perfectly okay with characters who are willing to lie to themselves so that they can achieve a level of like satisfaction in their life. I think that's maybe most effective or maybe even the most devastating at the end of Memento when this guy literally knows he's lying to himself in order to feel better or to feel something and he's okay with that. And at the end of at the end of Inception, he has chosen to believe that his children are real and as a result, he doesn't have to look at the top anymore. So it doesn't matter whether the top falls or not because he's made a choice. He has embraced a certain amount of agency. I think this is his happiest ending. I think this is maybe his first happy ending because I, I wouldn't really consider the Batman Begins or the Dark Knight what I would call happy endings. There's a certain completeness. Dark Knight Rises has a surprisingly happy ending. It does, but that's after this. Yeah, so okay, I guess gotcha, what I'm gotcha. saying is this is his first happy ending. His first truly explicitly happy ending if you believe what I believe which is that it doesn't matter whether the top falls or not. Yeah, all the other endings are pretty fucking downer. Pretty cynical. I also just love the fact that they're they're going about their business on this heist. They're going into Fisher's brain. They're fucking incepting him, but they're also doing him a favor. Yeah. You know, like it's a heist for sure and, he, and they're doing it without his, you know, without his permission, but they're actually doing him a favor. Like psychoanalytically, he's going to come out better after this than he went in before. Like they're going to solve a lot of his daddy issues in here yeah. and he's going to be a better person and he's going to have a more satisfying life thanks to what they did for him, which is all, I, I just always find my, I'm just always so heartened by that fact. Usually you go and steal from the rich guy or whatever. They're actually like helping him to work through some of his issues. I mean, that wasn't their main goal. It wasn't. It's just a, <laughs> it's just, it's a happy coincidence. We need to shift his animosity from his father to his godfather. You're going to destroy his one positive relationship? No, we repair his relationship with his father whilst exposing his godfather's true nature. 
We should charge Fisher a lot more than science over this show. Mark Kermode, uh, the famous British journalist, named it as the best film of 2010, saying, Inception is proof that people are not stupid, that cinema is not trash, and that it is possible for blockbusters and art to be the same thing. So if Michael Caine is playing Marianne Cote, Cotillard's father, and he's playing a character named Stephen Miles. Does that mean that Marianne Cotillard's name is Mal Miles before she got married? I don't know. I mean, it doesn't make sense that he's got a Cockney accent, yeah, and she has a French accent, right? Well, I think the implication is that her mother was French, but it's still just the the Miles thing. I thought was kind of interesting because it means that her, her maiden name was Mal Miles. Mal, Mi I don't mind Mal Miles. That's kind of fun. I think the Mr. Charles gambit that he that he uses when they go into the second dream level and he actually tells Fisher that he's dreaming. To me, that's Nolan taking a victory lap from the prestige <laughs> here's exactly what i did in the prestige and it worked so i'm just gonna i'm gonna double down on it i just love the idea of the kick i think the kick is one of the coolest and most relatable plot devices that i've ever seen in a movie i just like as soon as they explain the kick I'm like yeah we can all identify that we know exactly what that's like it's an actual thing it's also known as the hypnic jerk the hypnagogic jerk the sleep start the sleep twitch or the myolaconic jerk so it's a real physiological phenomenon i find it kind of interesting that yusuf who's basically playing like the dp in the metaphor is drinking on the job like he's drinking mm -hmm. <laughs> he's drinking yeah. champagne before they go into the inception and uh he actually he also initiates the first kick too soon is this nolan kind of commenting on cinematographers he, well he's also kind of a drug dealer you know he's you know he's the chemist so he's also dealing drugs and he's hosting creepy like dream parties in his in his basement as well this is when nolan starts really doubling down on all of his james bond stuff he's working out some of his james bond things and that in our dreams we can all be sort of secret agents and arctic commandos i think the lucas haas character who's kind of like this sleazy sweaty he kind of looks sort of coked up because he's playing the architect who gets replaced by Ariadne, it seems to me that it's almost Nolan commenting on these sort of like hack writers. They're a little coked up and they're they're sort of unreliable and you don't want to have to deal with these with these idiots. Like we need to get a real writer in here. So that's why we get rid of Lucas Haas very quickly right off the top. $160 million budget, $830 million worldwide is going to be re-released in theaters later this month. So we'll see if we can maybe break that that billion dollar glass ceiling. 87% on Rotten Tomatoes. I do believe it is his masterpiece or at least it's my favorite of his films. Sorry to spoil my eventual ranking. That's a good place to stop because we will continue on with Nolan. We are not done just yet, Matt, which is exciting. And we don't know when we'll see Tenet, but when we do, we will definitely talk about it and sort of wrap up this whole series and go over his sort of filmography as a whole and rank the movies. So I think that about does it. Matt, you want to call the people to action? Thank you for listening. If you haven't figured it out yet, we like movies, but we also like podcasting and want to continue doing it. If you like what you've heard, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your preferred podcast platform. Follow us on the socials at WLM Podcast. Drop us an email, WLMPodcast at gmail.com. You can help us keep the lights on by visiting WeLikeMovies.com and clicking on the donation link at the top. That's where you can find all of the assorted WLM ephemera. Spread the word, tell your friends, help us keep the conversation going for Oscar Dahl. I'm Matt Knudsen, and the degree of difficulty on this episode was... Six out of seven totems. Six out of seven totems.